0: Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Selma Zondan, and I'm a master's student of intellectual history at the University of St. Andrews. In this episode, Dr. Montserrat Herrero will share with us some of her insights to gain a comparative perspective on two aspects of the political thought of Carl Schmitt, John Locke and Thomas Hobbes. To be able to go into detail about both, we will actually be making this a double episode. Um, in the first part, we will be talking about the construction of absolute power, and then in the second one, about the method of political theology in um, all three thinkers. So Dr. Montserrat Guerrero is a professor of political philosophy at the University of Nevada in Spain, as well as editor of the journal Anuario Filosofico. Montserrat's research is in the realm of political theology, philosophy and theory of history, history of political ideas and political philosophy. In 2015, she published a monograph with Roman and Littlefield publishers entitled The Political Discourse of Carl Schmitt, a mystic of order, which attempts to offer a wide ranging discussion of Schmitt's discourse beyond the focus on specific elements or themes within his texts. Two more of her monographs focus on the writings of John Locke and Thomas Hobbes, respectively. Welcome, Montserrat, and thank you for joining me today. So Thank you very much,
1: Selma. I'm very happy to, to join your, your series.
0: You have spent quite a lot of time engaging with Hobbes and Locke and Schmidt in your research. And I was wondering, according to your research, how is absolute political power constructed in Hobbes, Locke, and Schmidt? What are the differences, and where do you find similarities as well? So, in my view,
1: the first theoretical configuration of absolute power is the one that comes from the pen of Hobbes. His approach, although rooted in the historical circumstances of the Religion's Wars, is the ideal construction of an artifice. A mechanism, as I have been able to point out in my book, Political Fictions, he starts from a series of fictions about reality that led him to conclude a unique model of political legitimation that today we call the modern state. The first fiction by which his system works is nominalism, which supposes that reality shown to the senses in the form of a fantasy. The second is that of language, which consists of conventional audible signs that serve merely as a reminder. The third fiction is linguistic discourse that expresses reasoning and seeks only utility. And finally, the last fiction and the most important so is the artificial, artificial person, whose words or actions that person are considered as representing the words of actions of a collectivity whether truly or by fiction, again. So this representation is made possible by an imaginary common fact that the individuals of a struggling multitude incapable of benevolence are supposed to reach. So the power that this multitude confers on the representative for the sake of peace is absolute because it has no reservations. within in the perhaps area where limited attributes to power, the as for example defined by Baudin, acquire maximum extension. This is how it appears in chapter 18 of Leviathan. In other words, the powers of the political power are practically total. The most important one is, in any case, the power of instituting the law, enacting the law, the law, is a com- uh, the law is a command of the sovereign, indiscernible in from power. Locke attempts to set limits to, to this all-encompassing power, leaving some competencies outside the power of the state, most notably property. Life, freedom, and possessions cannot be taken away from any individual by political power, Through this simple formula, Locke wanted to deconstruct the all-encompassing power designed by Hobbes. Schmidt, for his part, shows that once the modern state is created, that is, it is a theoretical framework within which the political order and legitimate power are inscribed, it is not easy reconquering spaces of freedom. And thus, for example, his theory of the the Constitution is a description of how this absolute power continues to manifest itself in liberal democracies through legal positivism, despite the existence of fundamental rights. So the theoretical construction of our modern states depends fundamentally on the ideas of Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau incongruously intermingled Modern states are absolute in scope, but also partly liberal and partly democratic states. Hence, the discursive defense can be made alternatively from any of these different traditions of
0: political thought. Thank you very much for that. Um, In one of your last sentences, you talked about the theoretical construction of absolute power. Um, I just wanted to go into detail about that. What do you mean when you say that Hobbes tries to construct absolute power theoretically? And does, Hobbes, uh, does Locke differ from this? How does he differ from this? So I simply mean that intellectual history
1: is, not, is one thing, so and political history is another. So both Hobbes and Locke write texts that could be considered philosophical in the sense that they express an idea of political legitimacy, that is, an idea of under what circumstances the exercise of political power, that is, the power of some people over other people, is justified. Certainly, with these texts, they try to influence the political reality of their context. So Hobbes was a terrible monarchist, while Locke, in my opinion, was a Republican. But in any case, the political practice of his time was, in a way, independent of these texts, which nevertheless had had their impact much later. Despite being anti-monarchist, for example, Locke defended in practice the restoration of William of Orange monarchy as a solution to a greater danger, which was the Catholic monarchies. So one thing is political history. In which absolute states are made possible by monarchies and revolutions also. Another thing are the theorists who, with their ideas, on the one hand inspire and on the other legitimize these, these political realities. So this is, the, for me, the difference between this political history and electoral history. So in this sense, Hobbes and Locke are theorists, but okay, they are texts act in political history, but perhaps not in the moment in which they lived. So this is
0: like a distinction in my view. Yeah, like a reconstruction. Um, yeah, and, and in your first answer, I also wanted to pick up on, on something else you said there. You said that for Locke, he constructed property outside the state. So um, could you go into detail about that? What role does the idea of property play in Locke's construction of absolute power?
1: So thanks for for the question. So the idea of property is one of the most important weapons Locke used in in my view, Locke uses to deconstruct this absolute power of the state. It should be noted that Hobbes point out in that chapter 18 of Leviathan, that property being necessary to peace and depending on sovereign power, the rules of property, that is the rules of what is mine and what is yours, right and wrong, lawful and unlawful, constitute the civil law and depends on the rule of the state. So against this, Locke in full continuity with the 17th century English tradition of thought, argues that liberty and property are inseparable concepts. Indeed, Charles I's own speech in the scaffold recognized that the security of individual property was a fundamental component of the English liberty, a liberty that no political government can take away. Indeed, the glorious revolution can be understood as the triumph of the security of liberty and property. What is new in Locke's thought, in my view, is how he argues philosophically, not so much historically, for private property. And he does so in the second treatise of civil, on civil government, chapter 5. The labor, he says, I, 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 I will summarize a little bit the argument. So the labor of, his, of the body and the work of our hands, we may say, are properly ours whatsoever then we remove out of the state that nature has provided and left it in, left, we left something in this thing, in something, we mix our lower with and join to it something that is our own. So, and thereby, we make that our property. So, for in taking it out of the common state in which nature had placed it, one person adds to it something by the labor, and this makes it inaccessible, inaccessible to other people, because of that is mine. It's private in that sense. So Hegel after will refer to this idea of luck when he speaks of non-expropriable goods such as labor, mm-hmm. and of course it is the kernel from which Marx's theory of surplus value will be derived. Marx will come to say that the capitalists cannot appropriate it. Locke would, te- would tell Marx, for example, that neither can the state, because it would operate as a great capitalist. So, so for Locke, the only possibility of a fair distribution of goods without extortion is trade, so not the state or so private property is something that really um, protects so freedom for him in, in his view. No? Mm-hmm. It's because
0: that, that it is very important. Yeah, and, and that kind of, I mean, we've been talking about the difference between Locke and Hobbes. And also, you said that Locke attempted to kind of deconstruct Hobbes' um, thought. Um, I would like to talk more about Schmidt in this respect um, why would you say is Schmidt usually understood as hubesian
1: oh it's very interesting that because many people think that is the same really so you are right so so first I think it's because Schmidt writes as I as a jurist in a status context but he's such a philosopher, so to speak, that he realized that the assumptions of the modern state are Hobbesian, and that we have not moved on from there. So, from the hypothesis of the contract, from the hypothesis of violence between equals, leading to the construction of a sovereign who makes the peace, who makes peace, who constructs peace. Secondly, because it is closer to the Hobbesian anthropological thesis, which sees human beings as partially dangerous, that is prone to struggle and violence, down to the Roshanian thesis of the natural goodness of humans. So certainly, in the book of the concept of the political by Schmidt, he's in the middle ground in saying that the mere fact of being human is problematic, and that we must therefore admit physical violence, that is the possibility of war, as something that will always be a condition on our understanding of the political. So even his criterion of the political sounds very the front-enemy distinction as a criterion for discerning whether we are in a political situation. However, Schmidt does not refer to the struggle between individuals as Hobbes does, but to the possible conflict between political units. There is this is the, the first difference between both because Habs is speaking about struggle between individuals and Schmidt no. Uh, so um, this is one of the discussions with Leo Strauss. Schmidt will Strauss discuss about this this uh, of this this idea of the struggle between individuals and communities. So on the other hand Schmidt was Well aware that the status political paradigm, status from the modern state political paradigm, was coming to an end, and that the future was opened up in which the relevant political units would be the large spaces that were not to be configured in the form of the state. So this is his propositional thesis in the Normals of the Earth, written in the, in 1950, something we are beginning to glimpse in political history nowadays. So, and, he, and in this, he went far, far beyond hubs. So the relevant units, political units
0: mm. are
1: not anymore the states, they're relevant, mm. but the great spaces.
0: Yeah. Not
1: even imperious, like in, in, the, old, in, in the old fashion, but great spaces. So that was the, the real the real proposition of Carl Schmitt. Hmm.
0: And if he goes beyond Hobbes in this respect in the in the kind of width of political units, how does that relate to Hobbes' concept of sovereignty then?
1: Yeah good question also So in a complex way but you are right he is Schmid uh, Schmidt um, takes this concept also from Baudin first and then from Hobbes so in a complex way. So to the extent that the aforementioned criterion of the political, the distinction between public friends and enemies can reach maximum tension and imply a conflict that is a moment in which there is a rupture with the existing order, the exceptional situation appears. A rupture on the legal and political order and it is precisely in this situation that true power is revealed. So hence, hence his well-known aphorism, written even before the criterion of the political in political theology, the book called Political Theology, and this aphorism that uh, that says it is the sovereign, it is sovereign who decides on the exceptional situation. Sovereign is that one who can decide on. Exceptional situation, so this can be read into ways he decides to provoke it, is sovereign because he can provoke this situation, or also he decides to put an end to it. Both are both are signals of of having power, the authentic power, the the factual power. No, mm-hmm. so. Mm, Insofar as the political sovereign is linked to, this, to his decision on war and peace, the Schmittian sovereign resembles the Hobbesian sovereign. I do not know to what extent, and this is something that I would have liked to ask Schmitt, he would agree with Hobbes on the scope of the sovereign's powers. So this, this, sovereign, this extension no, of the power. His text on the strong state and the free economy does not seem to agree so much, neither do his criticism of the mechanicism of the modern state or the idea that the age of the state has come to an end. But okay, there is many resemblances if hmm. it's true.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there will be a lot of open questions but you've given us a perfect insight into Uh, your perspective on Locke, and Schmidt with regard to absolute political power. So thank you for that. I would like to conclude our talk with a a bit more general question. Um, You've pointed at the difference between philosophy and political thought before, and also in the preparation for this interview, you said that although you do intellectual history, you are a philosopher and not very strictly an intellectual historian. So I wanted to know, with respect to your research, what difference would you say does that make? Which differences do you notice, for instance, in the approach and results of your research?
1: So that's a good question and a personal question even. So although there is a strong relationship between the two approaches, it can be said, that I work with one strand of intellectual history, the one that deals with philosophical texts. That is, those texts whose narratives aims to think about reality in what it is, or even in its normative aspects. That is, what it should be. And not so much in what it has become, that is, I do not work so much with documentary texts as, for example, an inventory of an 18th century English ship mm-hmm. or a journalistic text. So I admire very much, for example, the work of Pocock, who, who was able to bring together texts of a very different nature, of a different kind, when thinking about a subject or a um, an event, an event. So I think this is what I had in mind when I responded as I did. I had in mind when I responded as I did. But it is true that many times, and in particular in the work I'm doing now, I am reading three kinds of texts. You are right. I'm not just a philosopher in a sense. So philosophical texts, historical texts, and theological texts. Mm. for for working in the field of political theology, you at least have to deal with these different kinds of texts. So and it this is what I also prize in post-structuralist philosophy. So you are right. I mean, I am in that point, uh, I admire this interdisciplinarity. You know what I mean? But uh, okay. Uh, I, I I think myself as a philosopher in the sense that i was I was trained mm. in, in, in that discipline no? this is I think many people in my in my age perhaps in, are doing that they they, be, they came from a discipline, but we now are trying to to, to work interdisciplinary mm. intellectual history in that sense is a very important field for doing this inter, interdisciplinary work. So this is my answer, so thank you very much. Uh,
0: well, thank you for allowing also a, a bit more personal question. I think it rounds off our interview quite well and also gives, um, I don't know, a mo- more personal account of it. So that's it for today. Monserrat, thank you for your perspective on the construction of absolute power in Schmidt, Locke, and Hobbes compared.
1: Thank you very much, Selma. It was great.
0: We will continue our conversation in the next episode uh, where we will talk about the political theology in Schmidt, Locke and Hobbes. So for now, um, stay tuned and until next time.